I want to start with um, a question today that we're going to consider. We're going to go to Scripture and consider this question for a while. And then after we've considered it, we'll turn to tables and you all will talk. But we've got to warm ourselves up still a little bit, I think. I'm amazed at how many preaching conferences I go to where I hear very little from Scripture. Some, not a single verse. All we talk about is skills and techniques and best practices and people stand up and tell you how amazing they are and their ministry is. Uh, And we don't even crack the Bible. I remember uh, one of my mentors and professors, David Bauer, the first one to ever tell me I should get a PhD, and I I said to him, that's for smart people. (laughs) Uh, He said, Dave, get a PhD. Later, I went back to him and said, I I think I want to focus on preaching. I'm going to go think about homiletics. He said, no, Dave, get biblical studies and learn from the Bible how to preach. I went for homiletics anyway because that's where God was calling me. But that was the PhD in biblical studies that I needed. That statement stuck with me the whole way through. And I realized eventually, you know, that we maybe only have one sermon in the Bible, Hebrews. The rest is more like bullion cubes, you know. A little, the flavor of a sermon boiled down into condensable form and transportable package. It's not really a sermon, it's just a condensed piece. But we can learn from the flavor all through Scripture and make sure that the flavor of our preaching is still the flavor that Christ wanted it to be. So we're going to turn to Scripture. And we're going to talk about that first thing this morning. I'll talk about it again. Uh, And I'm really sort of the warm-up act and and just the closing sentence for Ken Shank. He'll be here in a minute then on the opening band. But uh, the question I want us to consider for a while is what if the will of God is right in front of us and we're missing it? What if the will of God for our church is staring us in the face and we don't see it? What if God's will for our church and our community is looking at us eyeball to eyeball, day after day, week after week, and we don't notice? If There's one thing that is common with all my experiences of my friends in ministry from Manila to Indiana to Haiti to wherever else. All of them want to know the will of God for their community. All of them have given their lives to pursuing the will of God for their church and their community. All of them are desperate to pursue God's will. That's part of the reason why clergy are the most satisfied profession in all the world. Secular studies show it every time they do it. UK, United States, Australia could go on. Study after study since the 80s have shown that clergy, we may be tired, it may be hard. We may complain on Monday morning. We always get the Monday morning blues. But we're the most satisfied profession in the world. Doctors are the most depressed. That's a different sermon. We're the most satisfied because we're pursuing God's will. We're chasing after things that matter eternally. We're doing things that we wake up the next day and if our minds are clear, If our hearts are right, and if we haven't let the enemy sneak in, we know it matters. We want to know the will of God. We want to pursue it. But what if it was staring us in the face and we were missing it? Turn to Philemon. Uh, If you still believe in a physical Bible, uh, you can turn back and forth about 10 times between Hebrews and Titus, and eventually you'll land on it. It's just one page. If you're on a a smartphone, of course, it's easier to search for. When you're studying scripture, pastors, I don't say this to the local church congregation. I never say this because of the culture we're in. But to pastors, can I say this? Uh, Can I commend to you still 
the value of a physical Bible. It's not wrong to use a tablet, not wrong to have your smartphone. But the value of when you study scripture, studying with a physical Bible so that you can make interconnections and that you can gather in time in the margins of that Bible all the notes over the years so that after 20 years of studying scripture, you can pull out seven different Bibles. And the same passage has your whole spiritual history with it. And when you go to a sermon, you're not starting new. You're like, look at this, look at this, look at that. I used to think, you have a whole set of study already there. Can I commend to you the reading of Scripture from your physical Bible? Today you don't have to, but sometime do. All right, Philemon. I'm going to read the whole book of Philemon to you so that you can go home and spiritually brag. You should be able to spiritual brag after a conference for pastors. What did you do? We read an entire book of the Bible. <laughs> Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, to Aphia, our sister, to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers because I hear about your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love for all the saints. I pray that you may be active in sharing your faith so that you will have a full understanding of every good thing that we have in Christ. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the saints. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I appeal to you on the basis of love. I then, as Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner of Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my son, Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and to me. I am sending him, who is my very heart, back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that you could take your, he could take your place in helping me while I am in chains for the gospel, but I did not want to do anything without your consent so that any favor you do will be spontaneous and not forced. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back for good. No longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul... I'm writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back, not to mention that you owe me your very self. <laughs> I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I ask. And one thing more, prepare a guest room for me because I hope to be restored to you in answer to your prayers. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ, sends you greetings, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. What a book. One page. Uh, it's been a little while since I did the commentary study on this, but I think it was like 48 Greek words. I mean, what a power-packed book. One page in Scripture. The question about this book is not whether or not Philemon missed the will of God staring him in the face. He did. 
This is a really simple story. Philemon has a slave. His name is a slave name, Onesimus. Like African Americans still experience with their last name, you know, Porter. Like slavery's gone when you bear it in your name. This is a slave name, means useful. Useful. That's his name. Philemon has a slave, Onesimus. Onesimus, for some reason, leaves probably Colossae. Scholars think that's one of the best guesses. There's other debates, but Western Turkey somewhere, maybe Colossae, where Philemon is living and leading a church, goes to Rome for some reason, bumps into Paul, who's under house arrest. Paul leads him to Christ. Paul writes a letter back to Philemon, sending Onesimus back with the letter, saying, take him as your brother. Onesimus didn't come to Christ while he was with Philemon. Onesimus was a house slave, a house servant. He served in the house where the church of God met and didn't come to know Jesus. He probably served the church while they were gathering. And he has to go all the way to Rome from western Turkey, long journey, to bump into Paul to finally come to know Jesus Christ. And Paul writes a letter that is just dripping with sarcasm and just this side of emotional manipulation. Maybe, we hope, you know. <laughs> Try to, you know, give the bit of a doubt to Paul. What is going on? Philemon missed the will of God. That's not a question. It's as clear as the nose on your face when you read the book. The question isn't did he. The question is, how did he? Keys. You've had this experience. You should have left 15 minutes ago to be there on time. Where are my keys? You're frantic now. Now for you, on time is early, so you still have a little bit of room left, right? You know this, pastors. You got a little bit of room left, but you're starting to sweat. Where are the keys? So eventually you call out and somebody says the least helpful thing in the world. Have you seen my keys? And they call back, have you checked the hook? Of course I've checked the hook. That's where the keys go. It's the first place I look. Yes, dear, I did. After banter across the house with voices elevated and you wondering why aren't feet moving, I'm desperate, I need help. Finally, somebody comes and helps and they find them underneath the hook, just underneath the shoe, poking out. It's the first thing they see when they walk into the room. I said, did you check the hook? Did you check, check the hook? Remote. You got up at seven to start in the sermon. You had a conflict conversation with somebody in the church staff. You had a meeting you were leading in the middle of the afternoon. You came home at four, that's still a long day, because you knew you had a board meeting that night. You tried to connect with your kids in the backyard. You tried to stay present mentally at dinner. Dinner was over, you took a little break. Then you went and led a board meeting where that one board member kept talking. Forever. You came home, it's 9.30 at night, can I just veg? My favorite show was DVR'd, I just want to watch my favorite show for half an hour, where's the doggone remote? Have you seen the remote? Did you look by the TV? You look everywhere, can't find it, they come in, it's sticking out of the couch cushion where your rear end was just sitting. Well, if you sit on the remote, of course that's where it's gonna, oh! Have you had this experience? Something is right in front of you and someone else can come in and see it right away. But for 15, 20 minutes, or a long extended period of time, maybe if you'd looked, you would have looked all day. You can't find it. 
that's what happened to Philemon. That's what happens to us, I think. How did Philemon miss the will of God? Well, preachers ought to preach things that aren't true every now and then. It keeps things more interesting. So let me, let me walk through some things that just plain aren't true, and you write them down. Can we do that? Just write down these falsehoods. That'll be fun. Uh, the first thing that I've heard preached on Philemon that isn't true, if you read the text and just look at it carefully, it's just not true. Just because it's a common interpretation of Scripture doesn't mean it's what the text says. Number one, Philemon is a shallow Christian. It's not true. But that's what some people think. Philemon was a shallow Christian. Well, you know, he, he probably didn't practice the, the faith the way he should have. Maybe he was just a nominal Christian. Uh, maybe he didn't uh, attend enough sermons. Maybe he didn't hear enough preaching. Or, you know, he probably ought to just read his Bible more. If he just read his Bible, pray every day, he'd grow, grow, grow. <laughs> he didn't grow. Now, if Philemon would have done what it takes to grow, we all sang the song, he would have seen Onesimus. I don't think Philemon was a shallow Christian. Look at the verses. Verse one to Philemon. Our dear friend could be literally translated my most favorite son. We don't have a, a parallel colloquialism. He's not his actual son, so translators don't put it that way because that's not what it meant. It was the most affectionate term an older man could use for a younger man who was a friend. My most favorite son. My most beloved son. Philemon was close to Paul. Who did Paul get really close to like that? Not nominal people, not fringe people. Paul was 110% devoted to the gospel of Jesus Christ. He got to dear friendship level with people who were at dear friendship level with Jesus Christ. He had relationships with plenty of others, but to call them dear friend. Verse two, to Aphia, our sister, probably his wife, to Archippus, our fellow soldier, probably his son, scholars think, and to the church that meets in your home. His whole family is Christian. He's leading a church in his home. He's not an hour a week Christian. He's more like probably a bivocational missional pastor. That's how we should think of him. He's on the way transitioning from some other profession to what will probably one day become for him his full-time devoted attention. Just like Paul who left tent making once he had enough support, I bet Philemon eventually left what he was doing once it took enough of his time. He was not a shallow Christian. Most of us wouldn't let the church meet in our home. <laughs> Shoot, we don't even want a parsonage <laughs> anymore. They, they know where I live. <laughs> They'd never leave. Philemon was not a shallow Christian. I'm sorry, he just was not. So how did he miss the will of God? Well, maybe Philemon, number two, was missing part of the gospel. I've heard that said before. Preached on Philemon. He's missing part of the gospel. Uh, this is a box from Poppy's Extreme Donuts, shameless plug. You just go out to 38th Street, you turn right, and look for it on the left, Poppy's Extreme Donuts. Best donuts in town if you want to break your diet when nobody's looking. I mean, you're out of town. You won't get fired for this. This might right away ring a bell in your mind. A little while ago, a guy by the name of Richard Stern uh, wrote a book, uh, A Hole in the Gospel. There's a hole in our gospel, he said. 
And the whole point of the book, using a donut as an example, was, you know, their cheapness when they give us this. They, they cut something out, and then they sell it back to us. Uh, there's a hole in our gospel that, you know, back in the 1920s, the, the house of, of the kingdom of God split in North America. And it had already split in Europe before that. Prior to that, we sent all of our young sons who were going to be in ministry over to Europe to get their education there because we didn't want them to be in World War I. So a lot of rich people who had sons who were going to be clergy sent them over to the German institutions and the Ivy League places somewhere else, privileged people to get their sons out of war. So they came back with a liberal theology from Europe and brought it to America. And then there became a battle. So watch where you send your children. Wesley. Wesley Seminary, thank you. All right. They came back, and there was a battle, and the, and the house of God had a divorce. And one parent went with evangelism, and the other parent went with social justice. So we had good news people, and we had good works people. And you had to decide. And at that time, in that culture, if you went this way, you lost the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You lost the authority of Scripture. You lost all kinds of things that we hold so dearly we die for them. So we went this way, with this house, with this parent, with evangelism, and lost the whole. And you had do-gooders and born-againers. Have you heard it? Do you know mainliners still call evangelicals born-againers? Oh, those born-againers. Yeah, that's me. The hole in the gospel is social justice missing from the good news of Jesus Christ. Came to give good news to the poor. Maybe Philemon just had a hole in his gospel. Maybe Philemon didn't see slaves. And that's, that's all it was, was a social justice issue. But it's not just a social justice issue. At least it's not just that. There might be some truth in that, but it's not just that. Listen to this. Uh, Philemon, let's look at the passage here. I always think, verse four, I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers because I hear about your faith and your love for all the saints. Uh, pray that you be active, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Verse seven, because you, my brother, have refreshed the hearts of the saints. That's Paul's common phrase for people who gave extremely generously to the collection for those who were starving because of persecution. People were hungry, they weren't being fed. Philemon helped feed them. People were naked, they weren't being clothed. Philemon helped clothe them. Forget about the fact that the church, at that point in time, was the center of all compassion work of the kingdom of God, among Christians, the church did it. They sold land, brought it to the feet of the apostles, laid it there, and they gave to anyone as they had need, the Acts chapter two. We're not very far away from that time. That's what was going on in the church. And Philemon had a church in his home. People were coming there asking for food, and he was probably feeding them. It wasn't that compassion and justice were completely missing. That's not just it. And he had the evangelism side. Paul later on tells him that he's a partner in the gospel. In other words, he sent Paul, missionally, he's probably baptizing people, leading them to the Lord, you know, baptizing them in his tub, his cistern, in his house. Philemon had both sides of the gospel. This may be North American Western Christians. It's not Philemon. We may be shallow Christians. Some of us just do ministry as a job and clock in and clock out. We're just cruising or coasting. We just got to make it through. I'm not saying that's you, but that's not Philemon. And 
we may have a church full of people who are this or this, but that's not Philemon. So the, the mystery gets even more mysterious. That is so good. I, I didn't even think about the fact that it would get all over me. I get to lick it. Oh, praise the Lord. Why is Philemon missing the will of God staring him in the face? We do have some clues in the text. For whatever reason, Philemon is done with Onesimus. Done. Done. Either Onesimus fled out of fear, perhaps for his life or punishment, or he was done being treated the way he was done, being treated. Uh, Slaves were treated very harshly in Rome. Either he fled... Or, and I think this is the better way of handling all the information in the text, uh, Onesimus was sent by Philemon because he was going to be sold. Philemon sent Onesimus, I believe, best way of handling all the details of the text, I think, to Rome because he'd get a better price for a slave there, number one. Big hub of slave trading. Number two, he was done with Onesimus And if he sold him, the money could go to Paul. I bet there was a private letter to Paul that Paul opened, giving him the rights to sell signet ring and the wax. Onesimus on the open market, take the money for what he needed. Why did he sell him? Or why did he get rid of him? Or if you want to go with the other theory, which I don't think is true, why did he flee? Well, Onesimus could have been irritating, do you work with anybody who's irritating? Ever, don't look, don't look, stop. Do you ever work with somebody, you know, the person who talks too much, can never stop talking, or they use up all their, their, their chips in, this, in one meeting, you know, and then you come to another meeting and there they are again. Or uh, the person who's a backstabber, you know, they smile to your face, and they stab you in the back. And, and, and Christians, we, we have a hard time with that because we might disagree with somebody, but we know we're supposed to be nice. So we feel in this double bind, but I don't like what you're doing. And so sometimes even just somebody being honest feels like backstab, somebody backstab you? Uh, irritating people, or maybe they just have bad manners. They're out to a lunch meeting. Would you chew with your mouth closed, for goodness sakes? Why are you blowing your nose loudly at the table? You know anybody who's irritating? Now, Onesimus is a house slave. He's there every day. Imagine if you had to go home to that irritating person. Again, don't look if they're here. What if you had to go home to somebody who just graded on you like nails to the chalkboard every day? Maybe Onesimus was uncouth. Maybe he didn't have good manners. Maybe he didn't have good grooming. <laughs> Maybe he had coffee breath. Our table has Altoids. You guys have. Maybe he had, he just stunk. Maybe he was irritating. Maybe he was incompetent. A lot of people today in the professional world in America will uh, refuse to judge any sin except incompetence. Do you know anybody in your community who's incompetent? You just tend to. Maybe he was immoral. He might have straight up stole from Philemon. Maybe he messed up the books in competency. Slaves sometimes ran the books. He might have lost his master money. Maybe he was immoral. He might have stolen. He might have done something deadly wrong. So let me ask you a question. We're talking about how do you miss the will of God when it's staring you in the face. Is there somebody who irritates you in your community that you don't pay much attention to? You know, you're out at the sports league and it's that mom that keeps yelling nonstop to their kid. You think, oh my goodness. 
or the person that they would just walk in the room and they smell. You smell them as soon as they walk in the room. One of my friends says smokers are the new lepers. Unclean, unclean. Anybody who smells in your community? It's irritating. Anybody incompetent? A lot of times people who have risen to the middle class, and I grew up in a trailer, at one point in time in our lives we, we sewed our own clothes and made our own soap. I remember gathering honeysuckle from out in the woods to scent the soap that we made at home. I mean, I, I grew up for a season of my life. We didn't have much money, but I'm not that way anymore. And people who rise up in the middle class often look at people in the lower class and think, well, you would have risen up too if you were competent, if you worked harder, right? We ignore those people because we think they're incompetent, and that's the one sin we keep judging. Is there anybody or a group of people in your community that their incompetence or your perception of their incompetence causes you to completely overlook them? Irritating? Incompetent? How about immoral? Because they're so immoral, they're written off. You know, there's prostitutes in every town in America, some of them trafficked, in every town. They're here at a hotel in Marion. They're in Kokomo. They're in Fort Wayne. They're in Indianapolis. They're in Muncie. Everywhere you go, they're written off. Are there groups of people that are immoral and you could be race, it could be class, it could be irritation, incompetence, immorality. Onesimus was overlooked by Philemon because Onesimus was the kind of person Philemon didn't notice, period. Onesimus was overlooked by Philemon because Onesimus was the kind of person Philemon didn't notice, period. Onesimus was overlooked by Philemon. Because Onesimus was the kind of person Philemon didn't notice. When people work in your yard, do you know their name? When they fix your roof, do you take a chance to hear their story? Are there hourly workers who are doing jobs you'd refuse to do that the only time you notice them is when they do it wrong? What if the will of God was staring us in the face and we didn't know it? Is there justice wrapped up in the middle of this? Is it part this? Yes, but it's not just that. This is the extreme Persian donut, by the way. It's like about as big as your head. And everybody in Marion knows this is the best. And they'll put caramel on it. They'll put chocolate on it. They'll put vanilla on it. It doesn't matter what flavor. The people in your community are vanilla, chocolate, caramel. They need Jesus. And they need a Jesus who doesn't just get their tails into heaven, but who changes their entire life, their outlook, their sense of hope, the cycles of poverty, the cycles of abuse. A Jesus that changes everything. And if they see a Philemon for whom Jesus doesn't change everything, they might not accept Jesus. How can you have a slave when Jesus is your master and you are a slave? There's slavery in America still, I believe. 
people doing jobs we would refuse to do for pay we would refuse to take and we don't notice it. We need a whole gospel. And the problem is, we often just switch houses. When we hear about this, we switch from evangelism to social justice, or we switch from social justice to evangelism, and our preaching doesn't marry the two again. We need, to re- we need to remarry them within our preaching so that evangelism always has a justice bent, and justice always has an evangelism focus. Okay, I've talked way too long. But who is your Onesimus in your community? Let's have some time for personal reflection. That may be too small for you to read. There's a screen back there if you're in the very back that might be closer to you. There's a screen up here. There's two screens there. I hope you can read one of them. Uh, But I want to take some moments for silent reflection. And if you want to journal, that's fine. If you just want to think and pray and close your eyes, that's fine. We're going to have a few moments of silence. Philemon missed Onesimus because Onesimus was someone Philemon would overlook. Who do you overlook in your community? I want you to actually think about that. I hope you'll write down faces of people you don't even know their name. Onesimus could have been irritating, incompetent, or immoral. Who fits these descriptions in your life? Which part of the gospel does your church major on in reality? Evangelism or social justice? Not just in your imagination, not just in your vision, not just in the words that you say, but in the actual habits and practices that you live in your community, okay? Process that for a moment. I'm gonna have a few people help me pass out a handout to help you process the third. But while they're doing that, just silently reflect. Don't focus on them, please. Focus on you and God and asking these questions of you, your preaching, and your church. do hope you'll actually do this diagnostic. Actually do it, even right now, and try to be as honest as you can going through it.
I know we have a variety of ministries. If you're not in a local church context on staff, think about the church you go to or think about the ministry you're a part of and, and land the context in your mind and then go to the diagnostic. I made it local church focused because I'm local church focused. But if that's not you, you translate. Like all diagnostics, I think it's part truth and part fiction. There's nothing infallible about this diagnostic, but it does help you think, I hope. When I took the strengths quest, I got done with it and said, no, that's not right. Picked the five I thought were true and handed them to my, my boss. They wanted them posted on our, on our doors. So like all, all diagnostics made up by humans, this is part truth and part fiction. <laughs> and you need to sometime come to the end of it and, and deal with the Holy Spirit and figure out what is really true. But hopefully it gets you thinking. I want you to think about, you can continue on that if you're still working on it. That's fine. Or take it home with you and work on it. Uh, your own gospel needs to be developed, and I'm talking to you as persons, as preachers, because I think that's so important. If you want to grow preaching, you have to grow the person of the preacher as a whole. Everything factors into preaching. All roads lead to preaching. My mentor, Cleo LaRue, used to say, all roads lead to preaching. Your whole person is involved, whether you recognize it or not. So if you really want to grow preaching, you can't just add techniques. You have to change the whole DNA of the person. So first thing is read your own mail. This was a letter written to an individual preacher, teacher, leader. It was written privately. This wasn't a public letter meant to be circled. It was privately written to Philemon, and if he hadn't accepted it, it wouldn't have become a book of the Bible. Philemon read the mail, transformed his life, and tradition tells us Onesimus became the bishop of Ephesus. I don't know if that's true or not, but it's a great story. A man will let preach. <laughs> Whether or not that's true, we do know Philemon read the message and believed it so much, he brought it to his church and they made copies. Read your mail. The message of God to you as a personal preacher cannot be transmitted through preaching faithfully, non-hypocritically, until it's been worked through your whole life. Read your mail. Become the mail you want your church to read. The message you write with your life is the most important one and the most difficult one. Isn't that true? Become the mail you want your people to read. Then that mail can become the church's mail. And only then. A lot of preachers have too short of a window between input and output. Don't make that input-output window so short that it hasn't fully worked through your own life. Do you have to have everything perfectly down? No. Do you have to be all the way through something? No, I'm not saying that, but I think you know what the spirit of that statement means, don't you? I don't think we're gonna have time for this, 
uh, but this is now a break discussion. I really meant to have you talk at your tables, and I failed. Uh, but there's grace, and I'm okay with it, because I think God's okay with it, so it'll be just fine. Uh, I've, I've been a long time good enough with 95%, 94%, okay, 80, whatever. All right, group discussion is now happening during break, which is happening in just a minute. But how would your church culture have to change if you were going to, to try and reach levels of society in your community that you typically overlook? If you're here with your staff, good grief, this would be a great one to discuss. How would your church culture have to change if it were going to try and make those overlooked ones' lives consistently better? Not just get them into heaven, but make their lives better. Break the cycles they're trapped in. Change the horizon of their vision. Extend their sense of hope for what's possible for them. What would have to change? How would the preaching of your church need to change if it were to try and remarry justice and evangelism? Not just change houses. And I mean not just change houses week to week. Sometimes we think, oh, we've remarried it because last week we did evangelism, this week we did justice. No, I mean in a sermon over and over again, get the double-stranded DNA helix woven together all the way through. What would have to change? Hope you'll talk about that over break. Hope you'll talk about that with your church or other leaders and your staff. Hope you'll discuss that because what, is a con- what does a conference matter? <laughs> Didn't you ask that question while you were driving here? Why did I do this? What does a conference matter? It doesn't matter at all. It really doesn't. The only thing that matters is what happens in the kingdom. And this conference isn't there yet. Only you can do that. Lord, thank you for these ministers who are slugging it out. I know they're slugging it out. But I also know, Lord, that when we get to taste the fruit of our work, even just one representative fruit, it can transform our perspective It can re-energize our spirits. It can give us a resiliency and a perseverance we wouldn't have had otherwise. It can help us face that long slogging effort when we see the fruit of our ministry taking root in the world. And Lord, we pray for people to be in the kingdom of God who wouldn't have been in the kingdom of God that we would have ignored otherwise as a result of this moment. We pray for people to break out of cycles of abuse and poverty, addiction and despair who might not have otherwise because of this moment. We pray for churches that become well-known in their local community for being the place to bring someone if they don't know Christ and for being the place to bring the poor, the naked, the hungry, the addicted, the abused, the least of these, the left out, It's not just we as a church that feel they're on the margins. Goodness sakes. Help us to reach them and love them as brothers and sisters. In Jesus' name, amen.